HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins. I work for Fairway Markets in the New York area. And we're awfully proud to support Heritage Radio. And we care so much about everything that goes on out here at Roberta's in their studio. Because they talk to people who are, are serious about food. And that's what we are at Fairway is we're serious about food. We, we just care very deeply about, about you as a, as a customer and how you cook and what you cook with and how you entertain. And, and that's why we love to support Heritage Radio because it, it, it's pretty much the same thing. It's wanting to, to find happiness through serious food and people who are serious about it and, and care about learning everything there is to learn about it. And that's, that's, we're kindred spirits. If it's something worth having in your kitchen, you're going to find it at, at Fairway. And if there's somebody worth talking to about food, you're going to find them on Heritage Radio, and we will be supporting you guys for a long, long time. At Fairway, I'm your personal grocer, Steve Jenkins, Fairway Market. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on Heritage Radio Network. And today, if you thought you knew how to stir-fry, well, just hang in there, because I have with me today Grace Young, the author of Stir-Frying to the Sky's Edge, as well as a lot of other great books, The Breath of the Walk and Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen, both of which received IACP awards and um, a James Beard nomination for, was that the the Wisdom of the Chinese Kitchen? Yes. Welcome, Grace. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Linda. Stir frying to the sky's edge. First of all, talk to me. Well, what about that title? Why the sky's edge? Where did that come from? There is a famous Cantonese expression, one walk to the sky's edge, which means um, whoever uses the walk becomes master of the cooking world. But in Cantonese, that phrase, sky's edge, actually means mastery that comes with practice. So I love this image that with practice you become master of the stir-fry. But also in the book I have over 100 recipes, and the vast majority of them are traditional recipes that people expect to find when they want to learn how to stir-fry, the kung pao chickens, the beef and broccoli. But about a dozen of the recipes 
represent what happened to the Chinese when they ended up in some of the most unusual countries in the world. There well, <laughs> that, that is something that I actually, before the show, I was talking to you about that just struck me in this book. Well, first of all, I want to backtrack on the, on the master of the yes. stir-fry, master of the, the wok. And I read in your book that supposedly the Cantonese, Cantonese are, the, are the acknowledged masters of the wok. Masters of stir-fry. Masters of stir-fry, okay. So throughout China, everybody stir-fries. Mm-hmm. But the Cantonese are considered the great masters because, um, whereas in northern climates like in Beijing or Shanghai, they'll actually do more braising or long cooking. In Canton, the heat is so hot throughout the year. It's sort of like living in Miami. It's a tropical climate. So Beijing, uh, Shanghai... Um, get real winters just like New York. Mm-hmm. But in Canton, it's hot, hot tropical. all the time. And so they actually have two growing seasons. And so then the wealth of vegetables that are available throughout the year is incredible. But they also have access to great seafood because they're near the ocean, the rivers. And so because the climate is so hot, the last thing you want to be doing is cooking for a long extended period in your kitchen. That's right. And so stir-frying, at most, requires two or three minutes of cooking. You're in, you're out. Hot heat, but not for long, right? Right. And the great secret of stir-frying is hot heat, quick cooking, but seasonal fresh ingredients. So the whole concept is that if you're cooking Ingredients which inherently have great flavor because they've just been harvested, you don't need to do much. So the Cantonese are always known as the cuisine that has the most minimal seasoning, that they're just doing adding just enough to bring out the natural characteristic of the ingredient. And so, um, well, that, that's and so much we hear about that so much today, in, in um, going back to natural foods and letting the flavor of the food speak for itself. And, yes. Yeah, so wonderful. the whole concept is you don't want to be stir frying asparagus in winter because mm-hmm. there's no flavor to draw out, mm-hmm. and the texture is likely to be tough and fibrous. But you want to be stir frying Chinese broccoli or broccoli, you know, American broccoli, winter vegetables. Well, now, you are from San Francisco. Yeah. So this, when you talked about in Canton, there are two growing seasons. I mean, you must have gotten used to that in San Francisco. Well, now you live in New York. How did you make that transition? That must have been difficult as far as the availability of vegetables for you. Um, yes, but, I mean, we're so lucky in New York because we have incredible farmer's markets. Right. Yeah. And I live about a 10 or 15 minute walk from San, from New York's Chinatown so I'm quite lucky. Yeah, so we do get we it's true we do get vegetables year round. Um well now you you mentioned a lot about um I, I was just really struck we'll go back to what you had talked earlier about the um the Chinese diaspora in around the world um certainly I was struck by hearing about a Chinese settlement in the Mississippi Delta way back in the 1870s. Um, Tell me, let's talk a little bit about that, because you really did a lot of historical research for this book. It's not just recipes and how to stir fry. I mean, you went back to find the sources and and the differences. I, I should just backtrack for a second, because I think it's really unusual that I ended up on this wild adventure, because the book is about stir frying. But just <laughs> as I started working on the book, I found out that there is a Chinese Jamaican restaurant in the New York metropolitan area in Queens called Enrique's. And huh. I went out there, and uh, the fare was pretty 
ordinary Chinese American food, sweet and sour pork, uh, chow mein, um, you know, the usual suspects. And then I saw jerk chicken fried rice. Oh, my goodness. And I thought, what is that? So I ordered the dish, and it was off the charts delicious. And I asked to go into the kitchen, and there I see a Cantonese chef standing next to a Jamaican chef. So I say to the Cantonese chef in Cantonese, how do you make jerk chicken? And he shrugs his shoulder, and he says, I have no idea. He makes, he points to the Jamaican chef, and he says, he makes the jerk chicken, I make the fried rice. (laughs) And then after that, I saw an article in the New York Times about the fact there are 20,000 West Indian Chinese in the world. Who knew? Who knew? I'd never considered the possibility of someone being Chinese Jamaican or a cuisine that was Chinese Jamaican cuisine. So I started off on this search about thinking about where the Chinese ended up on the planet. Right. And, um, And through this adventure that I went on, I ended up meeting these women who are in their 70s who grew up in the Mississippi Delta in the 1930s and 40s. And then I started doing research about how the Chinese ended up in the Mississippi Delta. So that's how stir-frying and this diaspora adventure coincided. Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, it, they, the communities that they established and they're you know getting hold of seeds and starting gardens uh, you write the stories of these people and it, it really just makes it a, a compelling read i have to say thank you well the most fascinating thing about it is that my initial question was so wherever the chinese ended up did they stir fry and yes indeed they did because mm. this technique is a chameleon technique so even if you don't have a walk the people in the Chinese Mississippi Delta, they were stir-frying with skillets and pots. Well, and also if you don't have a kitchen or a, with a, you know, a fancy stove or any kind of stove, you can, you can stir-fry over a fire, right? Yes, you can, you can stir-fry wherever you end up in the world. So, mm-hmm. And the interesting aspect of the Chinese diaspora is that wherever they went, they were very tied to their cooking. It was very important for them to maintain the Chinese culinary traditions. But not but many cultures are not like that. My husband is from Germany and he can go for two years without eating German food. It mm. doesn't change his sense of well being. My mother immigrated to America in nineteen forty nine from Shanghai. There was no way she was going to eat macaroni and cheese <laughs> or roast chicken or meatloaf. She didn't know how to cook. In China, they had had helpers that did Mm -hmm. all the cooking. And so she taught herself to be an extraordinary home cook because of the fact that she needed to eat Chinese food to feel a sense of wellness within. Yeah. Yeah. And so the Chinese in the Mississippi Delta, it's a fascinating story. They were initially brought in as... Um, indentured laborers. They were supposed to replace the slaves working in the cotton fields, but it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. And instead, they ended up running these little Papa Mama grocery stores scattered throughout the Mississippi Delta, generally one Chinese family per town. And um, in many cases, so these women that I interviewed who grew up in the Mississippi Delta said that in many cases their mothers and fathers didn't even speak English, that when the sharecroppers would come in, they would point to an uh, a, an item, the molasses mm-hmm. or the eggs, and the Chinese shopkeeper knew enough to say the number, and that was the that exchange. Was yeah. yeah. So they ended up servicing the sharecroppers because the whites, did, white Americans, did not want to do that job, and uh, 
it's really fascinating. In the entire state of Mississippi, there was only one Chinese grocery store where they could buy soy sauce, uh, dried mushrooms, just staples. Things they needed to do there to cook their food. And generally, once a year, they would make the pilgrimage to Greenville, Mississippi, to pick up their groceries, and until the 1940s, they didn't even have Chinese vegetables. Mm-hmm. Well, you, and you did you you did tell a story um, about food substitutions that some of the women would make. Yeah. So this one woman said that um, um, when the when ingredients couldn't be sold, when it was getting too old, her mother would take the rutabaga, peel it, slice it thin, and stir fry it with beef and a little garlic. So there was no ginger. Mm-hmm. But the most uh, touching story to me was from this woman named Ellen, um, not Ellen, um, her name is, um, just blanking out for a second, but she said to me that her mother missed, Rachel, Rachel Sitwell, I'm so sorry, yes. um, Rachel's mom missed the taste of snow peas so badly that one day she took English pea pods, shelled them, pulled back the inner membrane from the shell and peeled it off and stir-fried it with a little beef and onions to remind her of the taste of snow peas. I wonder if she got there. I wonder if she, she got said that it, flavor. It, she said it did taste remarkably like snow peas. Uh-huh. And then one day she took a, a, a regular russet potato, peeled it, thinly sliced it, and stir-fried it also with beef, just enough to cook the potato, but not so that it was mushy, so that there was still a little crispness to remind her of the taste of lotus root. Oh, interesting! Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And then they were finally able to get some seeds from uh, from China and start their own gardens. Right? Yes, by the late 1940s. But, Nine, but you, you figure that's a, you're talking, you know, maybe 60 years that, that they didn't around. have. Yeah. yeah, yeah, wow, interesting. And and you know, we think of of Chinese settlements, obviously in big cities. You know, all the big city, major cities have Chinatowns and and the restaurants. Or you think of you know rural area, maybe the one Chinese restaurant, but. Some of these areas didn't even have a Chinese restaurant until the late 60s. I mean, so exactly. we're, we're talking about really home cooking, and this is, you know, inventive home cooking at that, right? Exactly, and yes, um, yeah, I, I think some of the most ingenious things that we come up with sometimes um, are, are created out of necessity. Well, now, you, the, a book that you wrote, um, The Breath of the Walk, you taught, well, first of all, I did read it, and I read um, the other book, too, so I know the answers. But what is so wonderful in talking about the breath of the walk, and this describes a lot about what you talk about in the stir-fry book, what exactly do you mean by the breath of the walk? Oh, well, that goes back to a very uh, classic Cantonese phrase. When a stir-fry is made correctly, the Cantonese say that it has walk hay. And hay in Cantonese is the same as the word chi in Mandarin. So that means vitality or the life energy, force. Right. Yes. So when a stir-fry just comes out of the walk, that's when it needs to be eaten. When my father, when I was a child, my father would insist that we would sit at the table closest to the kitchen door so the least amount of time would elapse from the food coming out of the walk onto the platter to our table and into our mouth mm-hmm. now in american culture that's the worst seat that's the <laughs> that's last right. place you want the, <laughs> all the noise and the fumes right <laughs> yeah the, the maitre d to draw to walk you to that door but that's where my father wanted to sit and so i always say to people that it's like food right off the grill 
When food has come right off the grill, if it's sat for 15 minutes, it's still delicious. But there's a different taste when it's just off the grill. There's an aroma and a taste that's very unique that only lasts for a few minutes. Mm. And we call that in Cantonese, wok hei, or the breath of a wok. And it is that very seared, concentrated taste and what we call wok fragrance that the food possesses. Now... it, I mean, it, it's and it does make me hungry to hear that. And <laughs> just as looking at the pictures in your book make me hungry um, for the food. Um, in talking about all these different people settling in countries all over the world, yes, um, there are. You spoke a lot about the Hakka, as well. Am I saying that right? Mm-hmm. The sort of the gypsy. Clan, They're the, the gypsies, with, of, the gypsies China. of China, right? Yes. But and you say that everybody had different. Uh, recipes or different methods and different uh, ways of cooking, but everyone stir-fried. Everyone used the stir-fry. So you do tell, I have to tell our listeners that <laughs> you have been called many things, and <laughs> some of them self-appointed names, maybe others that people have given to you, the poet laureate of the wok. That's my favorite, <laughs> The yes. stir-fry guru or the wok evangelist. Uh, but I will tell our listeners that I don't know whether it wasn't in this book. It was from the Breath of the Walk, I suppose, that you actually braved Homeland Security to travel with your walk in your carry-on luggage. Is that correct? That started with Breath of the Walk. I did a twenty-five city cooking uh, uh, tour uh, where I was teaching, and I had to bring my walk because you realize no, you didn't have to bring your walk, but you had chose. to bring your walk. Yes, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, I realize what I'm doing is a magic show. Uh And if I'm going to show people how incredible a carbon steel walk is, they have to see it. And sometimes I'm doing TV, sometimes I'm doing a cooking class, and I can't risk that they're going to hand me a nonstick skillet or a wok. The the stir-frying is not magical. It won't work. Nonstick cookware is the worst possible cookware you could use for stir-frying. And carbon steel is the best. If you go into any Chinese restaurant, every chef is using a carbon steel wok. Well, now we're so I want you to tell me a bit about the walks. We're going to take a short break, and we come back. Um, I want to. I know there's a lot of there's a lot of spirituality imbued in the walk, but obviously it's got baser meaning. So stay tuned. This is a message from our friends at TechServe and the Lower East Side Ecology Center. The Ecology Center is rolling out its 8th annual After the Holidays e-waste events with 10 events scheduled in January 2011 to help you responsibly dispose of all your unwanted or broken gadgets. Help meet their goal of collecting 100 tons this January by spreading the word to your friends and neighbors. For more information, visit www.lesecologycenter.org. Again, this has been a message from the Lower East Side Ecology Center and our friends at TechServe. We're back, and I'm talking with Grace Young, the author of Stir Frying to the Sky's Edge. And, uh, Grace, we were talking about walks um, just before the break, and I, you have, 
you actually coined a, a term called the walk facial. <laughs> but I, wa- I want to know all about walks from you because there, I know there, it's a very special um, tool, a very important tool. And I have to say, I, I lost my walk. The first thing I did when I moved back to New York City from Italy was I went to Chinatown and bought myself a carbon steel walk. We're talking... 35, 38 years. Well, we're talking a long time. <laughs> but it had that that patina that you talk about. It was so well-seasoned. And then about 10 years ago, I made a move back to New York City and lost my walk. Oh, no. And, boy, it took a long time to build that up. So talk. let's talk about that. Talk about the walk and, and the proper use of and seasoning and, and the great patina you get with the, re- the reason you take your walk with you everywhere. So this is your walk therapy moment. Okay. Um, so in America now, everyone wants everything new. The latest cell phone, the latest uh, camera, TV, computer, car. Um, the moment your cell phone is even six months old, it's like I got Obsolete. my I, yeah I got my <laughs> iPhone in May before the um, four came out, and so it's already uh, such a dated you know dinosaur. <laughs> But the walk, the older, the better. Mm-hmm. The more it's been cooked in, that's a treasured item that you, and, and I feel for you that you lost your walk, but you're not the first one along the way. The more you cook with the, a walk, the more it attains this wonderful black patina that you describe, and it becomes a nat, it actually creates its own natural nonstick surface. Mm-hmm. So you, it requires less and less oil. So unlike, American chemical nonstick cookware Teflon. Um, this is what I call ancient nonstick cookware. And when I was doing stir frying to the sky's edge, I actually interviewed Professor Marion Nesso, who's mm-hmm. head of nutrition at NYU, and she said that a wok actually um, imparts dietary iron in your food. So this is. I mean, it's a brilliant way of cooking for, you know, hundreds of years. All ancient cultures used iron cookware, but we've gotten away from it. Even in America, we used to all use uh, cast iron skillets. And now America has become this nonstick generation. (laughs) Yeah. And the food doesn't taste right. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sear properly. And it just doesn't have the same wok fragrance. So... Yes, I'm a great lover of walks. I have a large collection of walks in my kitchen, under my bed, under my desk. I'm the Imelda Marcos of walks. But I think it's just so beautiful, and I I really got into it when I first started doing Breath of a Walk because I realized most Chinese Americans no longer know how to use a walk. And the walk has been around for over 2,000 years, and what a sad statement that people no longer know how to use it. Losing their heritage. Exactly. But now, since uh, Breath of a Walk came out. I've done. I've been. I was in Hong Kong and trying to do research for Breath of a Walk. But I've been. I've since been back, and it's really sad that in Hong Kong and China, it's not just Chinese Americans. Young people there no longer know how to use a walk. They don't even know how to cook because of the availability of fast That's food. Right. Uh, very affordable restaurants. When I first went to China in 1979, local people couldn't eat in restaurants. That was something that you did once a year or once every two years for a special occasion like a wedding Mm -hmm. or someone's like 80th birthday. Now China is just hopping and uh, inexpensive food is, is available for everybody. And so you have a whole generation of people growing up who have no idea how to cook. That's that's a shame. That really is a shame. And I mean, we well, we see that across the board with um, different. I mean, we are becoming a very small world, and we're kind of all sharing a similar 
culture and losing the heritage. And so it's, we, we got to try to hold on to some of that individuality. You know? Yes. And in um, as I was on book tour for Stir Frying to the Sky's Edge, I met this woman who is probably in her 60s or 70s who writes a very popular Chinese blog. And a lot of her um, listener, readers are from Taiwan. And she was talking about watching me season a walk. And these women who are in their 60s and 70s wrote to her and said, how do you season a walk? Oh, my goodness. So yeah. people have really disconnected from the traditions. And that's one thing that I'm trying to do with all of my books is I think that the stories and the recipes are so important to treasure. All right. So give us... Give us a quick a quick tutorial here. First of all, what's the best? You know, you go into the market and you see all these different styles of woks. Tell us, in your opinion, what the best type of wok is. So the traditional wok is round bottom, mm-hmm. carbon steel, actually cast iron. The Chinese make a very thin cast iron that's unlike the loge. But for America, we don't have a hearth stove, which is what you use in China. So the round bottom wok sits in this hole and you feed twigs or dried rice stalks, and you have this really hot little chamber that is heating up your wok very efficiently. So because we have gas stoves, electric stoves, glass, ceramic... Um, Induction um, stoves. Exactly. I recommend the best stove, uh, the best stove, the best wok is a 14-inch flat-bottom carbon steel wok. Mm, okay. So it's been Americanized. But otherwise, if you're using a round-bottom wok on an American stove, you have to set it on a wok ring. A ring, yeah. And the moment you set it on the ring, it's too far from too the far heat. Too far from the heat. I found that all the time. I take the regular grating off my off my um, burner and then put the ring down on that. Yes. And still, it just seemed to be too far away from the heat. I mean, if you have a Viking or a semi-professional stove, which people do, you mm-hmm. could use a round-bottom wok. But I'm writing for the average cook in right. America. Right. So I, that's why I recommend the flat bottom. And the flat bottom isn't very flat. It's only about five or six inches where it's flat on the bottom, just enough to balance it so that it's not going to wobble, it's not going to be dangerous for mm-hmm. you. And it's also been Americanized because it adds a wooden long handle. Mm-hmm. And that's really easy. So after you finish stir-frying, you can actually pick up the wok with one hand, you know, and then use the other hand with a spatula to pour the ingredients onto the platter. Makes it a lot more practical. The traditional Chinese wok well, the Cantonese style has two little metal ears, then you need the pot holder, and mm-hmm. then it becomes very clumsy. So it's really nice to have the flat bottom, which heats up more quickly, and yet it maintains the integrity of the shape of the wok, so you're still getting the high sides. And transmits the even heat through the whole, and the whole thr- and Exactly. Sides, yeah. The sides actually become a cooking surface. It's not as hot as the bottom of the well. But it is a cooking surface unlike a skillet. Mm-hmm. And you still get the very small well on the bombs, which means that you don't need to add very much oil. Right. When you're stir-frying on a skillet, you have to add enough oil to fill like a 10 or 12-inch skillet, mm-hmm. and that means a lot of oil for your cooking. So a wok is a much more efficient way to stir-fry. Well, well now, okay, so now give us a lesson in seasoning a wok. So many people read about this, and of course when they buy a new cast iron Skillet, as you mentioned, lodge or something, you have to season. Some of them come pre-season now, but you know those of us who remember the days before pre-season, describe to us the proper way to season a wok. A car. This is a carbon seal, or you know, right. So, so the seasoning is really to clean it of its factory oil, which is all carbon steel pans have have a coating of factory oil to prevent it from rusting from mm-hmm. the time it's manufactured to the time it reaches your home. 
And so you need to use like a very, like a stainless steel scrubber and liquid detergent soap, dishwashing soap. And really, really scrub it inside and outside. No stainless steel billow pads. Right. You could use, I think, Brillo at this point, oh, but okay. that would be the last, last time, time you'd ever, ever use okay. it. Yes. So really, hot water and soap several times. You're going to say to say to yourself, like, why did she say several times? Because I don't really see much coming off. But if you really examine the water, you would see little particles. Um, and I should say that when you buy a brand new carbon steel wok, it looks like it's stainless steel. Mm-hmm. It's silver in color. So anyway, you wash it several times, pour out the water, then you heat it on the stove for about a minute on medium heat for a minute or two until all the water drops have dried up. And then you swirl in two tablespoons of oil, and then you stir fry a bunch of scallions that have been cut into two-inch pieces and a half a cup of ginger. Why, <laughs> why scallions and ginger? I mean, does it, it doesn't absorb the flavor, does it? Well, um, actually, the most traditional recipe is with Chinese chives, but many, many Chinese home cooks use this combination of scallions and um, ginger. And the scallions actually have sulfates, and that sulfides, and so it's said to clean the wok. Oh, interesting. And after you finish stir-frying, I say you do it for about 20 minutes on medium heat. Normally when you stir-fry, it's always on high heat, but this is a very zen experience. You're just slowly stir-frying, and as the mixture becomes soft, you take the back of the spatula and you actually push the scallions and ginger all the way up to the edge of the pan so that every inside surface of the wok has been smeared with the scallion and ginger mixture. Hmm. And if it dries up, then you add another tablespoon of oil. I would use a high smoking point oil as you would for all stir frying. Mm-hmm. So that would be peanut, canola, grapeseed. Anyway, you do it for about 20 minutes. And by the time it's done, you turn out the, you throw out the scallions and the ginger. And if you smell the wok, the, the wok will smell of scallions and ginger. And what you're really doing is, even though it's on medium heat, the wok is hot. The pores of the metal have opened up. And so you're literally coating the, the pores of the metal with the hot oil. And that will seal it from further from rusting in the future and give it this patina that we talked about mm-hmm. that creates this natural nonstick surface. So then it's ready to use for any of the recipes that you have in the book? Well, after you toss the scallions and ginger, then I wash in hot water with a sponge. Mm-hmm. And then I heat it on the wok again as you would a cast iron skillet just to dry out all the water. And, and then, and then ready it's go. ready to go. Yeah. Now, I should tell you, be forewarned that the wok will turn either yellow, gold, blue, sometimes it blackens, it looks like you have just messed up your pan. It looks like a ruined pan. And you're going to think, oh my God. She told me to do this. What did I do? And you would think that a cast iron skillet turns black. Carbon steel doesn't. Carbon steel goes through this very awkward period for the first six months or a year that you're cooking with it. And depending on how much you cook with it, it may last even longer. But if you cook with it fairly regularly within maybe two times a week, three times a week, stir-frying, it will, it will continue to darken. Um, but don't get uncomfortable. In the book, I have a photograph of the three stages of a walk once it's first been seasoned with that kind of yellow hue that I mentioned Mm -hmm. after cooking with it for four months. It has this what I call the adolescent period where it looks very (laughs) awkward and kind of mottled, and then how it looks after you've cooked with it for two years. It's really black. Yeah, but you just have to have patience and, and trust that it will 
it will acquire that gorgeous black patina and then once it has that black patina it's a it's a work of art as far as i'm concerned well the recipes and and then you're ready to try any of the recipes that are in the book um what in your um estimation is it probably one of the recipes that has the the longest history of of a stir fry um method you talked about dry dry stir fried beef Yes. Is that would that be something that is I, I think if you want to think of the longest I didn't start to throw that one in. No, no, no. <laughs> no, but I think that the longest history I think in the beginning the simplest thing that people think of with vegetables mm-hmm. in in the very beginning I mean they some people some scholars say stir frying dates to the Han dynasty, some say the Song dynasty, and some say it wasn't really refined until the Ming dynasty. But um, whatever I but think, still we're talking we're, we're talking centuries. So. Yes, I think it was always the vegetables in the beginning, mm-hmm. and so I talk about the fact there are many different styles of stir frying. But in the book, I talk about the fact that one of the most popular is the clear stir fry, and that's one of the most glorious stir fries, which is that it's a of a single vegetable that's barely seasoned that just brings out the the natural flavor. So that if you add soy sauce or any uh, oyster sauce, that's not a clear stir. Fry. It's mm-hmm. really heating the oil, adding your aromatic like garlic or ginger, then your vegetable like the bok choy, and then adding just a little bit of salt or a pinch of sugar and possibly just a dash of rice wine mm-hmm. or dry sherry. Mm-hmm. And that is, to me, the classic stir fry. Mm, wonderful. Well, I mean, it's always been touted as a healthful way of eating vegetables and a great way to make a little bit of meat go a long way. Anyone who knows who's tried to, you know, cook for a large family knows that if you stir fry a whole mess of vegetables with just a little bit of meat, you can really stretch it to go a It actually, way. as I was doing the book and the economy was tanking, I kept on thinking this is the perfect cooking method yeah. for our times right. because we all know we need to be eating less meat, more vegetables. But also when you think about it, it's so um, environmentally ecological in terms of how long you're actually using your, your heat. The energy, right. The heat energy, it's like mm-hmm. two or three minutes, whereas when you're braising, roasting, you're using energy for about two or three hours sometimes. Right. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Okay, this is this is an easy one for me. So if you get a question, look on your face, I'll answer it. But the single most unusual thing in your research and your travels, because you traveled all around the world for this book, what was the most unusual thing that you saw stir-fried? Oh, that's... A- <laughs> The stir-fried bagel That's in Beijing. <laughs> if you didn't say it, I would. A stir-fried bagel. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, and the story behind it is so bizarre that a Chinese-American woman named Li Jen Chen ends up in Beijing. She was born in Taiwan, raised in Brooklyn, ends up in Beijing, misses bagels, comes back to America, learns how to make bagels, starts a bagel uh shop in Beijing. All the expats must love her. Yes, called Mrs. Shannon's Bagels. And then her employees come from all around China and one of them in particular, and they see the expats coming in every every day eating it with cream cheese and lox and butter or whatever. But this one employee is looking at the bagels and decides to stir fry them. <laughs> and she stir fries them with chilies uh, obviously, obviously thinly sliced up, right? No, she actually, I believe, cubed them, sort oh, of like croutons. Yeah, uh-huh. And she stir-fried them with chilies, American cabbage. Um, she used um, 
salted pork, mm-hmm. not salted pork, but pork belly. Mm-hmm. But in the recipe, I call for bacon because Lee Jen said that was like the easiest mm-hmm. uh, ingredient to put in. And then she used a little um, chinkyang vinegar, which you could use balsamic soy sauce. I mean, it's... <laughs> And everyone, all these employees, love this dish. She would make it every day at lunch, and it was everyone was addicted to this dish. So ingenuity never stops, right? No. And the most fascinating thing is, you know, I was studying what the diaspora did when they couldn't find Chinese ingredients when they were in Peru, Cuba, Jamaica, the Chinese of the Mississippi Delta. And here in China, they can buy any Chinese ingredient. Why would you choose to take American bagels... And, and make them dish. and create them into a stir fry. So to me, that was the most uh, mind-boggling stir fry that I did discover. Very, <laughs> very interesting. And bagels and bacon—you gotta love it. Yes. <laughs> right? Well, Grace, it has been a pleasure, a real pleasure. And your book, "Stir Frying to the Edge of the Sky," to the sky's edge. I always want to reverse that. That's okay. Stir frying to the sky's edge: the ultimate guide to mastery with authentic recipes and stories. And the stories I are, as I say, are as compelling as the pictures are to cook that food and the recipes are wonderful thank you so much thank you linda once again that was grace young and i'm linda palaccio join us again on a taste of the past we'd like to thank our executive producer jack insley